Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1, where we challenge the assumptions of our current society to resist oppression and investigate alternative ways of living for a world based on justice, solidarity, and sustainability. Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1 FM. It is your favourite local community volunteer staffed non-profit station and my name's Andy and I'll be hanging out with you on the airwaves for the next hour broadcasting on Jagra and Turable country as well as to the surrounding nations as well, land that was never ceded. Um, Today on the show, we are going to be talking about a people's history of alcohol in Australia. That's the subtitle of the book Knocking the Top Off, which has just been released. It's being launched in Brisbane tomorrow. Um, And today on the Paradigm Shift, we're going to be speaking to the two editors of the book, Alex Etling and Ian McIntyre. It's a quite a big book, a messy book, um, 500 and something pages and 67 different chapters, all looking at the different roles that alcohol has played in people trying to live the best lives that they can in this country in all kinds of ways and in political struggles and social movements and things like that. So you'll hear quite a bit about the contents of the book today on the show obviously i can't cover all of that but you can come to the launch tomorrow and they won't cover it all either but you can get a hold of the book if you want to do that but let's start off with an interview with one of the editors g'day andy it's really great to be talking to you uh my name's alex Etling. i'm one of the co-editors of the book knocking the top off a people's history of alcohol in australia put together with Ian McIntyre. And the book is being launched uh, tomorrow in Brisbane at House Conspiracy. So we're going to talk a bit about it. Can you start off by saying what was the inspiration for writing A People's History of Alcohol in Australia? Well, I sort of feel like you might be angling towards the question of how much of this is your personal history in pubs, which is... Um, For sure. And Ellen, I'm sure that inspired me in some ways. I mean, like a lot of people in Australia, I um, grew up around pubs. My parents went to pubs. Um, For me in particular, I was really into indie rock, even as an underage kid. And they used to have all ages shows. And I grew up in Perth. So there was a pub called the Hyde Park Hotel, which, um, yeah, just like friends bands would play and I guess what you'd call it was a dive bar but um, I think the moment when I really realised that pubs were 
sort of a, a thing, a precious thing, was when that pub was uh, taken over by the giant Woolworths conglomerate ALH. And um, all of a sudden, the bands are out, the nice uh, aesthetic was out, and it sort of looked like that classic cookie-cutter um, ALH pub, which is all around the country. And, um, you know, people in Perth are really upset about it. And, um, you know, this is like 20 years ago, but in a way that sort of stayed with me, that, you know, that pubs are, in a way, community assets and people feel very personal about them and um, have opinions about them. And so for me, liking music as well, you know, just the venues in music are also part of sort of the law of rock and roll. So, um, you know, whether that's cold chisels singing about the Star Hotel and the Star Hotel riot, which we cover in the book Knocking the Top Off, or, or Red Gum singing about Carrington Cabaret, or, or the, you know, the Beatles and the Cavern Club, you know, it's not even Australia, it's sort of like a part of the global movement of rock and roll, the venues are so much a part of that, and um, one of the classic ones for me to bring it to Brisbane, which your listeners will be interested in, is is all the mythos around Club 76, which is where the Saints used to meet. And, and in a way, that was because they were locked out of the mainstream pubs, so they made their own. It was an unregulated space. They basically turned a share house into a, into a music venue and people would bring their own drinks. And so just things like that sort of got, got my mind thinking about it. And sort of frankly as well, you know, I'm a historian, I've been an activist for a long time, and a lot of times when you write about history, you might start off with a problem, something that's sort of bad in the world. So I've, um, you know, been involved in in Aboriginal politics and queer politics, and, and um, you know, it's often a heavy topic, which is how you start. And I think maybe I just wanted a bit of a palate cleanser or something, so I sort of thought, well... Why don't I start off with how I want the world to end up looking? And, and that's, you know, something about um, joy and a communal nature of people coming together and having good times and creativity. And, and the times when I'd see this in the here and now would often be at the pub, you know, whether that was even just a family meal or going out with mates. So sort of starting off from from that point was actually really interesting and it doesn't take long before you then realise that there's all these impediments to actually having that that joy and that a genuine collective communal relationship with people and um, you know and the history of alcohol in Australia and pubs you know such a big part of that is um, who gets kept out of the pub and that could be women and coming back to Brisbane again we've got one of the most heroic moments in um, women's politics for sure and also the politics of pubs which is when um, Mel Thornton and Rosalie Bogner chained themselves to the bar at the regatta and that was protesting how women were kept out of the front bar and you've also got the same sort of histories of Aboriginal people being um, routinely kicked out of um, pubs or yeah illegally not allowed to drink in pubs same with queer people so that's that's a huge part of it as well. And, um, and you know, in this book, we cover so many different angles. Now, you've called it a people's history of alcohol. And I guess many of us, if we're familiar with that term, it's from Howard Zinn, his people's history of the USA. How does a people's history differ from 
other ways of telling history? Well, you know, I reckon that mainstream history, if you go into a library, um, 90% of the books, probably 99% of the books uh, of mainstream history, they, in a way, conceal... They conceal the fierce conflicts, that are, the fierce conflicts of interest that are behind the scenes in, you know, the way the world works and the way history unfolds. And, you know, there's that aphorism that history is written by the winners. And I think that's generally true. And, and people tend to want to tell the stories of the rich and powerful. You know, there's, there'll be more histories about kings and queens in your library or prime ministers or lawyers than there are about ordinary people. So, um, you know, we could have... Uh, there, there are books about alcohol in Australia and, um, you know, people have written about Penfolds and, and all these. So we could have written more about Penfolds Winery and, and things like that. But um, in our book, we have a story about the grape pickers who had no room to sleep in when they went grape picking and they had to go to the toilet in the vines so that's history. That's how um, the wine actually comes to you. Um, so we'd rather tell that story than look into the Penfolds family or whatever. And, um, you know, I think probably one of the easiest ways to think about people's history, and, you know, now if you Google people's history, you'll find a million books with that title. And, yeah, like, as you say, Howard Zinn is the is really the, the classic, but... The, the analogy that I like to think of is um, is going into um, a house and looking through the window. And for the um, just to keep it on theme, let's pretend that it's going into um, to a pub. So um, you could pick the regatta, or you could pick the RE, the Royal Exchange, and even choosing which pub you might go into says something about. Um, politics and history in the student movement around uh, University of Queensland in the 60s and 70s. The regatta was where the right-wing students used to drink. The RE was where all the lefties and the rat bags would used to drink. So, um, but let's pretend you're going into the regatta, for instance. And um, I think when you look at history and the idea of people's history, it's the idea of what you see when you look out the window. And so if you went to um, into the regatta and you chose the nicest window to look out of you'd see you know the nice lace work you'd see a beautiful view of the river and you know there's the um the the rowers from uq the very rich kids who are coming and everything the, the gardens neat and tidy everything sort of out in its place and looks like how you're told it's supposed to be and so that's one way of telling history and then, but what if you looked out through a different window? What if you went round the back? Well, you'd see the laneway out the back. You'd see the parking lot. You'd see the worker rolling in the kegs. You'd see, you know, maybe an early era. You'd see the, the SP bookie um, doing some gambling or some two up in the back alley or maybe even sex workers, um, maybe a homeless person sleeping in the alley. So, um you know, that is the real world, the stuff, the way that a real society works. And, um, you know, as historians, I'm interested in telling the real world, not the uh, manufactured 
um, vision of what the rich and powerful want us to see. So, you know, knocking the top off of people's history of alcohol in Australia, that's what um, it's telling. You know, most of these stories have not been told um, significantly before, if at all. And that's because of the approach we took. We wanted to tell stories that hadn't been told before about ordinary people's lives, the marginalised, the oppressed, the poor. And, um, yeah, I think it's a great book. Most cultures drink alcohol of some kind. I guess, is there something unique about the role that alcohol has played in Australian culture that comes out in this book? In a way... It's very difficult to find something unique about it. And I think that's actually what makes it so fascinating and so interesting because you see these patterns playing out all over the world and throughout history. Like alcohol, um, there, there's an argument that, you know, in the um, Neolithic era that um, it was the desire to come together to drink in a ceremonial way that actually um, was what led to agriculture, the rise of agriculture and farming, um, not the other way around. People usually say, oh, people were growing wheat and, um, oh, and then there was leftover wheat and so then they made beer out of it. But people actually, so there's a, a thesis that it's um, the other way around, that people just have this desire to um, commune, to come together and to get intoxicated and what and that can mean many different things and you know i'm sure everyone listening to this whether you're a drinker or not you, everyone knows that there's a there's deep contradictions around drinking you know you drink when you're happy you drink when you're sad there's um you know it can make you feel really good it can make you feel really bad so um yeah, I, I struggle to think of something that, you know, about Australia that you couldn't apply to um, to another country, particularly a, a, a settler colonial situation. You know, I, if I had to say something that's distinctive or, you know, we're talking about with Australia, it is that it was a relatively new colony. And so, you know, capitalism is, you know, going full steam ahead in the UK, and they, um, you know, they, they brought it out to Australia. And, you know, I, I think it was deeply unpopular with workers, very popular with um, industrialists and people who are going to make a lot of money. But, yeah, so much about the story is with alcohol and trying to control the supply of alcohol to motivate people. And you have situations like people might have heard of the Rum Rebellion, and um, a lot of people don't actually know the, what the Rum Rebellion actually um, means, but uh, it's actually because, well, essentially, you know, alcohol became a form of a currency, but um, who controlled the alcohol basically controlled how the colony worked. So it was essentially a tussle over power, and um, the Rum Rebellion was... Um, you know, a period, it led to a period of military dictatorship in Australia. I think very few people want to recognise that Australia was a military dictatorship. So following on from there, you have a situation where most of the workers are not very happy to be here and um, you motivate them with alcohol. And particularly the, you know, regulation of it 
and that means limitation. So there is one theory that um, the, in the very early settlement of Australia, that per capita it was the most amount of alcohol ever drunk in humanity. So that's remarkable. But the reality is that the supply was um, pretty intermittent and they were actually withholding the alcohol. So basically it's like you go off, work, 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 um, cut down the trees, build the buildings, build the roads, um, and then we'll give you some grog. And that would be to pay you off, to motivate you. And so I think you'd have to say that the early days of Australia are a lot about that regulation of alcohol as a sweet reward for building up capitalist social relations. And, um, and you know, the obvious, very dark, dark history of all of this is what happens to the Indigenous population and, um, you know, the first um, drinking regulations are... Uh, a lot about um, preventing Aboriginal people from drinking and that might sound very um, humanitarian but when you look at it um, in Queensland that was all about just having a pliant workforce, a pliant Aboriginal workforce to work in the pastoral industry. They didn't want um, drunk people, you know, drunk workers, not that great workers. <laughs> um, and from there you've got a whole history of Aboriginal people fighting for a civil right to enjoy, uh, enjoy a drink, be able to go into a bar and basically enjoy public life and social life as everyone else does at the same time as recognising the harms that come from drinking. So, you know, just one of the, you know, the contradictions that come up over and over again. And, um, yeah, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating recurring story that comes up throughout the book. In the book, you personally um, write a few chapters about Brisbane and in particular interest maybe to some of our listeners about 4ZZZ and Brisbane punk music. Can you tell us why you thought those things were significant and worth documenting in this book? Yeah, well, I think that... Um, Triple Z is one of the world's greatest radio stations. Like, just a fascinating thing to have to have come about. And actually, Brisbane in general, if you were to describe the political scene of Brisbane, the political scene in the 60s and 70s, what would characterise it? I think people would say that, um, you know, New Left might be one of the words. Um, you know, Melbourne and so they all had their kind of different political complexions, whether that was Maoism or Trotskyism or anarchism or whatever. Um, but, you know, the I'm sure a lot of listeners to the show will be aware of what they call the Big March. And, you know, that happened in 1967. And this is a whole year before that, that great revolutionary insurgent year of global revolt, 1968, you know, Paris, May 1968, and uh, Czechoslovakia and all these things kicking off in America. So you have it all happening in Brisbane. They had this, this amazing political culture and I've always been fascinated by FOCO, which was this multimedia sort of political art sort of extravaganza that they had in the trades hall. And um, so I knew, I, I knew these things. I just wanted to explore them and you know, Brian Laver described Foucault as a revolutionary speakeasy without alcohol. And obviously, at a certain point, alcohol 
comes into it. And so I was trying to just dig into that that very peculiar mix of culture and politics in Brisbane. And it became apparent that, you know, Triple Z becomes um, such a big part of that story. And, yeah, when writing about it, you know, basically it was activists. It was those sort of, uh, um, you know, people who'd gone to FOCA, who'd marched in those marches, who were making um, very cool publications and they were having a real um, struggle with distributing them. So, you know, if you're struggling to distribute uh, a paper-based publication, um, they thought, well, pirate radio is such a big thing in the UK. Let's go and try to get a radio station up and running. So, you know, not an easy thing to do and very expensive and basically, the radio station is funded by beer, and it's funded by, a few years later, basically, the, the river of grog that goes through these punk shows. And um, at a certain point, you know, things become complicated. Um, Triple Z's collecting the door money while the venues are collecting the beer money. And... Um, but, um, yeah, you know, the heroic things that triples, the Triple Z newsroom did in particular, exposing the moonlight state, these are all things funded by the fundraising initiatives, whether that's the bands and, you know, just by happenstance of the era that Triple Z forms, it's the punk era, and they got in on that very quickly. So it's punk music, punters drinking, drinking beer that funds Triple Z, Funds, um, you know, the news coverage. It's you know taking it to um, Joe Bielke Peterson, and um, we also cover like the things on the side, like the Triple Z Red, which is these sort of fundraiser bottles of red wine, and um, yeah, the, the I mean those stories are just so appealing to sort of if you kind of discover these artifacts. Well, who actually did this? Who came up with the idea? How did it work in practice? So. Uh, that's what I wanted to cover in the book and to draw these threads together of politics, of uh, culture, of media, getting the message out of what, what, what were your, the political tactics, what were the political objectives and all of this. And inevitably, people had different ideas about those and there was conflict. And, um, and I pull all of that out in the book and I heartily recommend that people have a read of it and come along to the launch um, and hopefully we'll, we'll uh, have some audio and video of that that will pop up on social media as well. And we're, we're all over the, the internet now. Uh, find us uh, knocking the top off on Facebook and we're on Instagram, we're on TikTok, we're on YouTube, we're on Substack. So you can find us there and you can also buy a copy of the book when you follow those links that are, uh, on those online platforms. All right. Well, thanks, Alex. I've been enjoying working my way through this sizable book, um, and I'll see you at the launch tomorrow. Awesome. Thanks, Andy. It's been great to talk to you. On the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ, that is Alex Etling there, editor of Knocking the Top Off, A People's History of Alcohol in Australia. As you heard there from Alex, the book does cover all kinds of topics, including a chapter that he wrote about Brisbane punk music, which is... Uh, very illuminating and interesting if you are interested in the the social history, I guess, of music in this town and in punk music in general. Um, one of the things that I learned in it is that 
originally the Saints used as a rehearsal room, and I think their first ever gig was in this building in which I'm currently sitting. What is now the 4ZZZ studio was at that time the Communist Party headquarters. Chris Bailey's older sister was a communist, and she wrangled these young punks to get um, a space to rehearse in the downstairs area. What's now the reception where you can come in and visit people in the uh, sitting reception and, uh, I don't know, subscribe to 4ZZZ or buy some merch or something like that, and uh, imagine that you were... there when the young saints were rehearsing there um it is great as well i have read uh, a fair chunk of this book now it is a very long book but um to read as well four triple z written about the history of this place and all the hard work that went into it and it's just um really nice seeing that kind of history yeah the history of ordinary people just working together and one that we're still creating you know how we get together and create our own sort of institutions to make the kind of world we believe in and so that was really an enjoyable thing and i do recommend reading at least that chapter of the book now i'm going to speak to ian mcintyre now uh he has been on the paradigm shift a few times before he's an amazing social historian of activism in this country and he also helped edit this book let's have a listen to ian i'm ian mcintyre and i'm the co-editor of knocking the top off a people's history of alcohol in australia and we are going to be talking about that book let's start off with what drew you to writing this kind of book yeah well um i've sort of been interested in political activism social history troublemaking and so forth um, particularly in the context of Australian history f- for a long time and I've written various books and produced various articles and documentaries and stuff about different aspects of sort of Australian society and and particularly um, political and social activism so I suppose at different times uh, the topic of alcohol you know being a, a fairly large part of Australian society and and um, entertainment and so forth over the centuries had, had kind of come up and uh, yeah Alex and I kind of connected through well initially through a project that was going to be looking more at I guess social history and political movements through the lens of football Australian rules football uh, but over time we sort of t- put different topics back and forth and and one that came up was I guess alcohol and and pubs yeah lots of contributors kind of suggested themselves through that and then as the book developed um, we kind of realized there there were various um, gaps that we could fill as contributors as well now one of the things about this topic that I thought of when I first heard of the book was that well alcohol is a big part of Australian culture and has had lots of influence. Uh that influence isn't always positive and when we talk about a lot of the social issues that we have to struggle against in Australia often alcohol is a part of those things as well. in a negative way. And so so I'm wondering how you feel about that kind of tension and how you dealt with that in the book. Yeah, geez. Uh, there's sort of a lot to say about this. I mean, I, I guess to begin with, um, I mean, alcohol and its consumption, they're not neutral things, um, but neither are they sort of wholly negative or, or positive. So 
I guess like any other thing that potentially gives us joy, you know, it obviously has their dark side. And, and that's particularly the case, um, you know, when you live in a society where there's already all its different forms of exploitation and, and harm and discrimination and so on. So like any commodity, particularly ones that, you know, make you intoxicated, um, you know, alcohol gets used differently and has different outcomes for different people. Um, so as a social history, I mean, there's definitely chapters and sections of the book which kind of celebrate and focus on the role that pubs and alcohols played for various movements and, and people and, you know, and we see different instances of uh, alcohol providing kind of collective conviviality and um, pubs being places in which to meet and, and um, you know, alcohol and access to pubs being things to fight for and win but yeah hopefully it's not too celebratory because i think at the same time the book you know and the different contributors i don't think they shy away from the destructive role and violence that occurs in relation to drinking in pubs and, and you know there's examples all through the book of that kind of stuff happening and we see the way that sort of racist class and sexist divisions kind of get expressed um, through the way alcohol consumed and, and the darker sides there in the chapters about negative impacts on individual activists and unionists but also union movements and and you know in the life of say artist Noel Cornahan in the kind of music scenes um, associated with kind of punk and pub rock and we also sort of ne see negative impacts on communities and I guess in the book even when these effects aren't kind of made the focus they're still sort of there in the context and the backdrop so for instance the sort of exclusionary and sexist and racist nature of pubs you know on the one hand you know the, the book discusses the importance of pubs to bohemians and modernists and anarchists and other people but we also see those scenes having to really struggle to find a pub that will let the women in their groups come in and mingle with the men and again, we also see where, you know, Aboriginal people and women... And, you know, we have some riots in the book which were kind of alcohol-fueled, but I guess there's the dark side of that is also sort of comes out, I guess, particularly in the, in the case of Wollongong because these riots, they're not happening in the context of kind of people moving forward to some revolutionary moment. They're coming in the context of a whole lot of misery because of kind of mass unemployment. So there's a, a, a lot of tensions get kind of explored in the book. Um, you know, alcohol consumption, negative behaviours, you know, can mess people up. They can be a real distraction. Um, they can exacerbate differences, but, you know, they can also bring people together and, you know, raise money for good causes and, and so forth. So I guess sort of a, a key question or tension that's hopefully gets played out in the book is that you know, alcohol consumption from the beginning of colonisation was a major part of Australian life. So, so how do political and social movements relate to that? You know, and this is probably... Different people have recognised, right, drinking's destructive, but it's what people are doing. And people are saying they want increased access to alcohol and they want more time to drink it. So what do you do? Do you embrace alcohol consumption and try and use the positive aspects of it? Do you try and shape that existing culture? Um, 
Do you make sure people's health is being looked after and what's the best way to do that? Do you create an alternative place to drink? Do you try and keep um, drinkers out of your ranks um, or do you work on alternatives to drinking altogether? So these sort of questions come up, I think, over and over for activists um, in the book and we don't shy away from the fact that, I guess, wowserism, which is a sort of caricature of the temperance movement as being kind of scolding and moralistic, um, that existed. But we also, you know, in the book, there's a whole lot of different, uh, I guess, socially progressive temperance movements. Yeah, so it is a theme that sort of comes through the book in various chapters. And you do get to see that sections of the temperance movement, um, you know, that they weren't all, I guess, sort of middle class wowsers um, denouncing the working class for, for, you know, being the lower orders or whatever, because a lot of the temperance movement was quite heavily rooted in unions. And the idea of temperance was definitely linked into ideas about how to uplift the majority of people, you know. So, yeah, we've got some chapters in the book which talk about the fact that unions initially met and were formed in pubs, but this was also, and I guess this is one of the insights that I learned from the book and something that hadn't occurred to me, is that there basically weren't any other indoor places in the early days of Australia for working people to meet, you know. The pubs were the places that were big enough, they had a balcony that people could speak from, etc, etc. But the fact that drinking could feed into bad behaviour and, you know, stop anything from getting done and, you know, and also that some unionists said, look, you know, it's just negative, it shouldn't be done. I mean, all that kind of gave the impetus um, to create mechanics institutes and, and trades halls. And, and all that kind of tied up, tied back, I guess, to not just having a place that was alcohol free, but these were also places that were about making life better for the majority. So you could get an education in a mechanics institute. You could hear lectures about different things in a mechanics institute or trades hall. You could take part in a kind of socially progressive political movements and so forth. There's one chapter in the book about Aboriginal women opposing alcohol in remote communities, which has been an ongoing struggle for a long time in Australia. And um, some of the stories in that are the opposite of this kind of middle-class wowserism. In particular, in one community, they went to the pub with axes to kind of smash the whole place up. Definitely, definitely. And, yeah, I mean, to go back to, I guess, I mean, that particular chapter's by Maggie Brady, and, yeah, she links the kind of, I guess, the militancy and the care that was expressed in the women's temperance movement of the 19th century and yeah and then she links it to uh women-led movements you know in various um northern territory and south australian communities over the last sort of 30 or 40 years and there's also i mean one of the ones that i found interesting in terms of temperance union was you know the women's christian temperance union and how from the earliest sort of early 20th century to the 60s, um, you know, they were one of the leading allies in the fights uh, for against racial discrimination. But that kind of focus on Aboriginal rights meant that they ended up lending support for Aboriginal people to have equal access to alcohol. But they didn't do that at the cost of sort of throwing out all their temperance views. They had to kind of square that, you know, you know to say, well, 
there has to be some level of equality, <laughs> even around negative things. But we're not going to give up our focus on alcohol, and we're not going to give up, you know, trying to trying to win people over to that. Yeah. So you know, the temperance movement, just as much as sort of pubs and alcohol have had uh, a big impact on political movements and the kind of shape of how they what they've done and where they've met so so has the sort of temperance movement and yeah i mean we also look in the book at the sort of movement towards state hotels and the use of the gottenberg system because uh you know temperance advocates some wanted full prohibition on alcohol and they weren't able to uh, persuade the majority of australians to adopt that so you know they also had to sort of work with what was possible and so one of the pushes was that well if the government runs the pub and we can take profit motives out of hotels and kind of have greater regulation then you know some of the more sort of negative aspects of pubs can be taken away but once again you get all these tensions and different forces and you know the experiments with those state hotels uh, tended to get derailed. I'm wondering, in the course of editing the book and doing your own research to write parts of it, what were some of your favourite stories or new insights that you gained about alcohol in Australia? Yeah, well, I definitely gained an insight around, I guess, linking back to, to the previous thing we were talking about, just how much the union invo- uh, union movement was involved in trying to ameliorate the harms of alcohol. And so you get different sort of people within unions, um, you know, pushing forward occupational health and safety issues tied to alcohol. Um, you get, And you also get various individuals and, and unions at different times coming up with alternatives for people. So, so one thing that I really, I don't think I had realised was just how much people drank during the working day. So, you know, we've got some stuff in the book about brewery workers. It was sort of seen as a perk, but really it was part of their wage. You know, they got a certain amount of beer to drink during the day, you know, as part of the working day. And that was the case up until the sort of 70s and 80s. And, you know, for dock workers, for, yeah, for lots of workers, sort of having having a break in the day, I guess the equivalent of the smoko, you know, when people used to go and have a cigarette, they, they'd go and drink. So I hadn't quite realised just how much people were drinking on the job. And that was totally socially acceptable and in, indeed sometimes included in the wage. So it was interesting to see how um, some unionists tried to deal with that in a way that where they realised, well, if we kind of moralise and we just scold people, they're going to get their backs up and, and that isn't going to really um, change things. So you had various people just coming up with alternative activities and often they included the arts, bringing in people to do performances during lunch times and, and that kind of thing. So I found found that quite interesting. I also found, I guess, as, say, brewery workers were, you know, ideas around occupational health and safety changed, drinking during the day when you're working with all this heavy machinery and so forth, um, you know, everyone realised that that's not really safe. But then there was this kind of often these tussles where the employer would basically try and claw back uh, people's time, which they would have had, you know, for their beer break, um, but also their wage in terms of that, that 
you know, they're getting a certain amount of alcohol for free. So they try and claw that back by just saying, oh, we're going to get rid of this, you know, because of OH&S. And then the unions would have to sort of push back against that. I mean, the other interesting uh, aspect I found, a lot of uh, the contributors' um, work, but also my own research, just around the connections of, of music and um, pubs, which, you know, in other... I mean, drinking and, and music often go together all around the world, but, you know, the particular f- they take a, they've often taken a particular form in Australia. So, yeah, reading the chapters about, um, you know, kind of folk musicians and jazz musicians and uh, the rise, of, rise and fall of pub rock um, and then researching, um, you know, various benefits that I was either at or I remembered, which were associated with particular pubs. And, um, yeah, just trying to, you know, it was really interesting to find out a bit more behind the people who organised those kind of gigs and, and the role that they felt they played um, in different scenes. So one of the things that you particularly have been researching is hotel boycotts. And this is one of the recurring themes in the book is a pub, I guess, not just as a, a place to gather, but as the actual site of social struggle. So do you want to tell us a bit about those hotel boycotts? Yeah, so um, I sort of got interested in them because I was researching boycotts in general and I just kept finding that these hotel boycotts, you know, were one of the most popular forms of uh, boycotting anything in, in the early 20th century. So I was sort of interested in, A, well, why pubs? <laughs> and B... Um, you know well, what happened and how you know how was this successful or not successful so yeah i did a whole bunch of research um which ended up being a f- there's a few different chapters uh in the book about these hotel boycotts there's one about um that they were very popular in the wa gold fields during um the 1900s 1910s 1920s um and then there's um, some chapters about brisbane mostly these hotel boycotts happened in kind of rural areas due to a few different factors um one was that you know rural areas it's a very small community often most people at that time in australia lived in the country too uh and um you know the local pub on the one hand had a lot of power because it was the only pub and it could put up prices but on the other hand the community had a lot of power because the people who were drinking in these pubs well they're the only drinkers you've got so i think the fact that um, people saw that they might have a chance of winning and most of these campaigns were about uh, weren't about the price of beer and they were actually about um, making sure that women unionists who were the barmaids so women had often been pushed out of the public bars of pubs but they were still in there as workers so they're often about um, defending sort of women's wages and conditions and improving them so there's a little taste of those chapters all right thanks very much ian thank you andy thanks for having me on and and yeah i always enjoy um when i have a chance to listen to the show doing so so good on you that is Ian McIntyre, one of the editors of Knocking the Top Off, A People's History of Alcohol in Australia. has just been released. You can buy it at all good bookstores. You can come to the launch of it tomorrow at House Conspiracy. It covers a whole range of stuff. you got a little taste of it today on the show. See you next week or I'll see you at the book launch tomorrow if you're coming. <laughs>